Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Welcome to a bonus episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Theolyn Arduzzi, an editor here at the TLS. The article you're about to listen to, part of a series of long reads taken from the TLS, is narrated by the team at NOAA News Over Audio. You can listen to more TLS articles on the TLS website and in the NOAA app. You are listening to the Times Literary Supplement. We're on the 25th of June, 2021, Michelle Pridmore-Brown, a research fellow at the Center for Science, Technology, Medicine, and Society at the University of California, Berkeley, writes, Paternal Effects, What Science Can Tell Us About Manliness. In his book titled The Better Half on the Genetic Superiority of Women, the geneticist and doctor Sharon Maalam argues that, as a male with a single X chromosome and a puny Y chromosome, he is disadvantaged. A second X chromosome, which most females have, constitutes a source of hidden horsepower. It accounts for females' survival edge in all sorts of contexts, in the womb, following premature birth, in fighting viruses or cancer, in extreme environments such as that of the Donner Pass in 1846, when twice as many men as women died, in famines in general, after accidents when women heal faster and more completely than men, and, of course, at the end of life, when centenarian females outnumber males four to one. By this account, male superiority is the product of eons of cultural smoke and mirrors. The male's muscular carapace hides fragility. 
Moalem's explanation for the 2x advantage hinges on tantalizing research that demonstrates how the second X is not silenced, as has been previously assumed, but flexibly and adaptively activated throughout life. When survival is at stake, 2Xers have immunological options, and genes in the second X can, Houdini-like, escape the chains of X inactivation. They have more genetic instructions with which to react more creatively to life. Moalem's metaphors flirt with behavioral applications. The single X carrier is like a muscle car, while the double X carrier is a flexible hybrid. Males are, for the same reason, more prone to developmental disorders and less buffered against traits such as colorblindness, excess iron absorption, hemochromatosis, and, more controversially, explosive rage when the MAOA gene is severely mutated. The MAOA gene was once dubbed the warrior gene, as it had been linked to aggression in observational and survey-based studies. Others have emphasized that a nurturing childhood can attenuate its link with criminality. It's a seemingly tidy story, but it has a rub. The contexts in which carriers of two X's are actually more vulnerable. Usually, it seems, this is when survival is not at stake. Females are far more prone to autoimmunity, to overly critical immune cells, as it were. Moalem describes this predisposition as the tax for a more aggressive immune system and for a more finely attuned response to environmental threats, manifested also in greater rates of broken heart syndrome, depression, PTSD, and chemical sensitivities. The social or environmental backdrop matters. The young males, for instance, who died in disproportionate numbers at the Donner Pass, were those who were unattached. And while females can on average better withstand starvation, they are also more prone to obesity in times of plenty. As for their greater ability to withstand viruses, they may indeed be less likely to die of the initial infection, but are also more likely to be viral long haulers one is left with a niggling suspicion that Moalem has brushed too much under the carpet for the benefit of his superiority tale. Matthew Gutman, a cultural anthropologist at Brown University, also explores how environmental cues activate or silence biochemical responses and behaviors in a feedback loop. But Gutman emphasizes different parts of the loop to Moalem. In his book titled, Are Men Animals?, how modern masculinity sells men short, he is adamant that we place an absurd amount of trust in bio-explanations for male behavior in particular. The male may be inherently fragile, but behaviorally, writes Gutman, in what becomes a refrain, he can do better than the Darwinian stereotypes about male predation and promiscuity suggest. He means to be bracing, but the refrain can be cloying in its generality. Gutman has a great handbag of fashionable peeves. Locating masculinity in the Y chromosome has long rendered him apoplectic, he tells us, as does locating aggression in testosterone. He attacks figures of speech, the fog of testosterone, testosterone addled, and knee-jerk assumptions about boys being boys who can't help themselves and therefore, by virtue of their biology, have to be excused. He makes predictable allusions to the 45th President of the United States. UN peacekeepers figure as well, 
because they have repeatedly been indicted for sexual exploitation of the local populations they are supposed to serve. Their behavior, Gutman says, has been rationalized, if not excused, by invoking hydraulic or safety valve metaphors. For example, male bodies need outlets by way of accessible brothels, or they will necessarily rape the vulnerable. These tropes, Gutman argues, do insidious cultural work, reinforcing stereotypes about masculinity, when in fact the real problem lies with male entitlement. Generations of endocrinologists and geneticists, Moalem's predecessors, hardly helped the situation. They baked cultural beliefs about men into the molecules they discovered, especially testosterone. By the time it was discovered in this century that testosterone wasn't a singular manliness factor or an excuse for aggression, it was too late. The idea had taken off. So long as they're in the normal range, and that's of course an important caveat, testosterone levels tend to be a red herring. They may increase from a male's baseline in response to his own aggressive behavior, but this also holds with generous behavior. Testosterone intensifies pre-existing behavior, whether pointed in the direction of a cowboy swagger or a self-effacing nurturance. For Gutman, what matters is that the human male, unlike the male of other species, is inherently malleable and can be pointed in any number of directions by the stories we tell about what makes a man. The male's homo sapiens essence is variation, variation, variation. His Exhibit A on this score, rates of male violence, which vary wildly across time and place, and Exhibit B, levels of paternal commitment, which vary equally wildly across cultures and within them, too. In short, unlike in other primate species, neither a tendency towards violence nor a certain level of paternal investment is hardwired. Rather, cultural and social context nudge men in one direction or another with domino-like effects. But culture is nothing if not capricious. In Shanghai and Beijing, Gutman finds evidence that the gender binary has roared back with a vengeance after the relative egalitarianism of the Mao era. Manliness, it seems, is being fetishized anew. While feminist activists in China may mock manliness as an empty signifier, this doesn't change its circulation, nor the fact that, almost by definition, it comes with the trope of the leftover spinster, now called the three-high woman. She is trebly unfeminine, with overly high income, education, and, crucially, age. Male superiority, Gutman argues, is being reactivated by identifying women's biological clocks as the ultimate arbitrator of gender norms. In other words, by that age-old cultural ploy of biologizing male privilege, locating it in men's ability to produce sperm and procreate at late ages without bearing the consequences. In this regard, Renee Almling, professor of sociology at Yale University, is an unwitting solutionist. In her work titled Gynecology, The Missing Science of Men's Reproductive Health, she implicitly calls for the idea of male superiority to be dismissed by bringing the health of the children produced by the sperm of aging men to the foreground of our collective vision. A methodical writer, devoid of Gutman or Moalem's occasional self-congratulatory habits, she puts new data about male reproduction to work. 
Only at the turn of the century did researchers think to concertedly put old men's sperm under the microscope. The cells were unusually ragged, slow, and truncated. The apparatus for making them degrades over time, spawning new mutations. Aging men are thus more likely to beget children with higher rates of schizophrenia, autism, ADHD, birth defects, and some cancers. The increase with age is gentle rather than stark, however. Men over 50 are more than twice as likely to sire a child with autism spectrum disorder than men under 30, according to the study's Omling sites. How much one chooses to make of that depends on culture. Clues about paternal effects on the health of children have, after all, been noted in the medical literature and elsewhere for decades, but never rigorously pursued. It has also been known or suspected since the 1970s that how men live, what they ingest, their smoking and chemical exposures, can impact the health of their children. Age compounds those effects, but measuring by exactly how much is fraught with uncertainty, and thus with plenty of wiggle room for cultural avoidance. The point is that what previous researchers did not want to know, a new generation of epidemiologists do want to know. And now scholars, including Omling, are calling for that knowledge to be systematically activated in institutional settings and the public sphere. Culturally, this would mean viewing the male body not as a site of machismo or virility, but as subject to a moral clock. If men are seen as responsible along with women for reproductive outcomes, boys being boys who can't help themselves might then be viewed not with indulgence, but as unacceptably fatalistic. At the least, it could be argued that the risky behaviors that might signify a manly lifestyle ought to put prospective mothers in mind of unhealthy sperm. Amling notes the power of willed ignorance, however, which still extends even to the more basic facts of life. When, for instance, she interviewed men across the socioeconomic spectrum about reproduction, more than 90% retold outdated versions of active competitive sperm, containing the non-degradable spark of life, as it were, and passive vessel-like eggs. More egalitarian interviewees, usually younger, were somewhat more likely to see the egg as active and the egg and sperm as two halves of a whole. Very few saw male behavior as implicated in the health of children. The old biological stories, in short, have staying power because they naturalize people's cultural and political beliefs about masculinity. Avoidance is about defending one's privilege. You are listening to the Times Literary Supplement. We're on the 25th of June, 2021. Michelle Pridmore Brown, a research fellow at the University of California, Berkeley, writes, Paternal Effects. It was read by Adrian Walker for Noah. Thank you for listening. You'll find more audio articles on the TLS website as well as in the NOAA News Over Audio app. And we are happy to announce the return of the exclusive TLS subscription offer, exclusive that is, to our podcast listeners. So there's really quite a lot to be getting on with. Go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod to take up this offer. 
And don't forget to listen and subscribe to our weekly show with me and Lucy Dallas. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.